0: talking about physical activity and nutrition and how these interact with weight management, we now turn to another pillar of lifestyle medicine that we often take for granted, yet is closely related and affected by all of the other lifestyle areas, and that is sleep. By the end of this module, I hope that you would have gained a basic understanding of sleep, be able to identify the key factors that inhibit sleep, recognize the importance of evidence-based information concerning sleep, demonstrate the connection between sleep and health, and recognize ways that sleep can be improved through behavior change. So what is sleep? Now, while we've all experienced it, it is kind of hard to describe or define for someone. It is officially described as a natural periodic state of rest for the mind and the body, in which the eyes usually close, you usually have a low level of consciousness, and you are completely or partially um, decreased in your body movement and responsiveness to external stimuli. During sleep, The brain in humans and other mammals undergoes a characteristic cycle of brainwave activity that usually includes intervals of dreaming. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Now, researchers in this area have outlined the behavioral criteria that are used to define sleep and distinguish it from other things. For example, a rapidly reversible state of immobility and greatly reduced sensory responsiveness defines it as different from a coma or, in other mammals, hibernation. An increased arousal threshold, which means that it takes more noise to be awakened, and there is a decreased responsiveness to other external stimuli. Now, there are also some species-specific preferences for both posture and place of sleep. Now, for humans, this is usually in a bed. Now, for other animals, there might be a more specific position, like curling up, like you might see a cat or a dog do, or in other animals having some sort of nest or den that they use for sleep. And there are even behavioral rituals that happen before sleep. For us, we tend to start yawning. For other mammals, there might be circling or nest making. And this circadian regulation and persistence usually takes a 24-hour rhythm, at least under constant conditions. Now, some of that gets disrupted from time to time. For example, when we try to manipulate it um, in the case of jet lag, for example, or in the case of daylight savings time, which also often creates havoc in people's sense of sleep and um, energy levels. But overall, it could be considered a behavior that's highly homeostatically regulated, such that if you lose sleep, you have an increased drive for sleep and a subsequent sleep rebound. Now, not only is the definition and behavioral criteria a little bit complicated, so is the science behind sleep because there's a lot we don't really understand about why it occurs and what happens during the sleep process in regard to various processes in both the brain and the rest of the body. We do know some things that tend to occur. For example there are arousal centers in the brain that are responsible for your wakefulness. We follow a cycle of repeated wakefulness or arousal and then sleep that's regulated by several processes, which we'll talk about here briefly. So the arousal centers in the brain are located in the brainstem and the hypothalamus. And these are responsible for keeping the cerebral cortex Engaged, And that cerebral cortex is responsible for our consciousness. And the stimulation of those arousal centers happens by the process of neurons in the hypothalamus, which produce orexins, sometimes called hypocretins. Those stimulate the arousal centers. They activate neurons in the hypothalamus and in the brainstem to continue a process of arousal or wakefulness. Now orexins are also related to uh, senses of emotion and reward and energy homeostasis because they are also related to other neurotransmitters such as dopamine and serotonin which you'll also see will come up here in relation to sleep as well. Now some on the other hand we've got some things that work to promote sleep. So the Ventrolateral preoptic area, usually abbreviated VLPO, promotes sleep by inhibiting arousal activity. And it is usually triggered in a homeostatic cycle by the buildup or accumulation of adenosine. I'll talk about that in just a second here. So this is the homeostatic control that your brain uh, works with in terms of promoting sleep because your body needs to clean up that buildup of adenosine and as that accumulates it indicates the greater need for sleep and you'll see how this plays in in just a moment but that's not the only thing that is influencing your sleep cycle. You also have a master clock and that con- is controlled with a circadian rhythm. So the other part that's involved here, in addition to the ventrolateral preoptic area with adenosine, you've also got something called the supra nucleus, or SCN. This is in the hypothalamus, and it is controlled by the retina during the day, so light, and the pineal gland, With melatonin by night. So this is where you get that 24-hour cycle because melatonin is largely influenced by the amount of light that you receive. So let's put all of this together. So adenosine is one of the components of ATP. Right, You probably all learned about ATP in the past. That's where we get our energy from. But as ATP is broken down, as you use energy during the day, you get a buildup then of that other component, the adenosine component, as you use the different phosphates that are broken off of ATP for energy. And so, as that begins to accumulate, it signals... The VLPO, that sleep is necessary. Now the VLPO is also influenced by the SCN and light. So let's talk about that again. In the retina, you have cells that are stimulated by light. And when they are stimulated by light, they produce a photoreceptor called melanopsin. And this signals daytime to your brain in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN. And then what happens next is as light begins to increase, you will then get a decrease in melatonin. So what happens here is in the pineal gland, in the hypothalamus, you're going to get a suppression of melatonin as it gets more light. So that's what's happening to you in the morning. Light stimulates the eyes, in the pineal gland, you're going to get a suppression of melatonin. Melatonin, as it rises in the evening, is prompted by darkness, and that then promotes sleep. So the opposite happens. As it gets dark, you get an inhibition of those photoreceptors in the retina, and that is then going to increase production of melatonin. That will then prompt Sleep. So you can see here you've got together this homeostatic sleep related to adenosine, and then you've got the circadian drive largely related to melatonin and a 24-hour circadian rhythm. So you've got the two of these working together. So as adenosine rises, this blue one here is the homeostatic drive, as adenosine rises, that is going to signal then to the VLPO that we need to have sleep in order to clean up this accumulation of adenosine. Now as um, light is produced in the morning, that is going to then suppress melatonin. So as that occurs, you're going to have a greater awakening. So this upward increase is a wakefulness. But as adenosine gets high and as darkness begins to fall and melatonin rises, you are now going to get a need for sleep. And that produces this sleep gate, this window of a reduction in wakefulness so the arousal centers are suppressed and you feel the need for sleep so this during this time you are sleeping and as the sun rises and you get now the adenosine level is low and you begin to suppress melatonin now you will experience arousal and this cycle continues over that 24-hour period and then repeats itself now once sleep occurs what does it look like? Well. It's broken down into several stages, some of which has rapid eye movement and some which does not. Now previously they defined four stages of non-rapid eye movement. Now they've kind of consolidated the last two into a single stage. So we would have three stages of non-REM sleep followed by REM sleep. So let's talk about each of these individually. The first would be stage one or N1, which is non-REM sleep, and it's kind of a transition stage. This is that period at the beginning of the evening where you start to feel sort of tired. When you're actually in bed and you you might have a, um, a, a sleepiness, it's sort of uh, decrease in awareness. It doesn't last long. In most people, it's only five minutes or so. And you might have muscle twitching, but you're still easily aroused in the sense that if a loud noise or a movement in the room, something could wake you easily. That is because it is still a level of light sleep. Now, if we were to look at the brain waves with an electroencephalogram, we would see what are called theta waves. And these are just very small, um, fast wave, electrical waves in the brain. As we move into stage two, it is also non-REM sleep, still light sleep. It is actually what makes up the majority of your sleep. Your respiratory rate slows, the heart rate slows, the body temperature begins to drop. It is still light sleep, but it's actually the majority of your total sleep. And you do have some interesting changes. In the EEG, you see what are called sleep spindles, which are some of these areas where you have some rapid changes in the electrical signals, and then larger waves called K-complexes, which look very similar to what you'll find in this next stage, which are called delta waves. Stage three is the beginning of deep sleep. This is still non-REM sleep, and it is often called SWS, or slow-wave sleep. And that is because the EEG shows these delta waves, these large electrical waves in the brain. During this time, it is much harder to wake. You have limited muscle activity, the blood pressure decreases, breathing slows, and it can even sound sort of irregular. Body temperature declines even further. And then eventually you transition into dream sleep or rapid eye movement. In this phase, you tend to enter this about 90 minutes or so after initially falling asleep. But it doesn't last very long. You have several episodes of these throughout the night that only total about one and a half to two hours um, as a whole over the course of the night. Your heart rate and BP actually increase here. And the breathing becomes more rapid, but it's shallow and the muscles are relaxed. During this time, your brain is actually doing quite a bit. You consolidate, process memories, and having REM sleep is important for generating long-term memories. Now, these four stages together, considered one sleep cycle typically happen four to five times over an eight-hour period. It's not always linear. It doesn't mean you have to progress from N1, N2, N3 to REM and then back again. But what you will see is there are some unique changes over the course of the night. So for example, as the night progresses in a typical eight-hour period, the REM stages, which are shown here in blue, the REM stages actually get longer. And the non-REM stages actually get shorter as the night progresses. Sleep also changes over the lifetime. So over the changes in age, you will see a difference in the amount of time spent in each stage and the time spent awake. So a couple other terms we haven't talked about just yet. Are SLO or sleep onset latency? This is the amount of time it takes for you to actually fall asleep. And then, in some cases, during those periods of light sleep as you transition, you may find that you wake up briefly. And in some cases, people take a little while to fall back asleep after awakening. And that's called WASO, or wake after sleep onset. Time spent awake after you've initially fallen asleep for the night. So what you see here is that in very early life, so infancy, you have a lot of that slow wave sleep. But the slow wave sleep decreases significantly as you get older. What also um, changes is very early in life, it doesn't take long to fall asleep um, and you spend less time awake before sleep begins and if you wake up during the night. That time increases with age as well. It takes longer to fall asleep as you get older and if you happen to wake at night, it may take longer to fall back asleep during the night as well. Now, how much sleep do people actually need? Well, there's really no official national guidelines, not the way that there are for nutrition recommendations or exercise recommendations. So I'm going to give you a little bit of information from a couple different sources here. The National Institutes of Health suggests that school-age children need at least 10 hours, that teenagers need around 9 but a range of 9 to 10 is adequate, and that adults ideally need at least 7 Or up to 8. And unfortunately in their research, 30% of adults don't even get 6 hours of sleep. And of high school students, only about a third, less than a third, get more than 8 hours of sleep. So much like our lack of meeting recommendations in exercise and in nutrition, the same is occurring for sleep. Now, if you look at information from the National Sleep Foundation, they actually have more specific age categories. Now, in very, very newborns, very early life, they need 12 to 18 hours of sleep. And then infancy, it decreases a little bit between 3 and 11 months. And then very early childhood, you still need between 11 and 14, depending on age. And then here's where you'll see that meet up with what the NIH said. And that's your school age children, 10 to 11 hours. Teenagers, early adolescents, and teenagers, 8.5 to 9.5. And, and for adults, um, considered 17 or older in this case, at least 7, potentially up to 9, especially for your teenagers there as well. Now, why is sleep so important? Well, the biological basis is largely unknown. I talked a little bit about the regulation with adenosine, the accumulation of that, and that you clean that up as you sleep. You also do a lot of other cleanup in body tissues with sleep. Neurons get a chance to temporarily shut down and repair themselves, but other tissues heal and repair themselves significantly it also is a big part of your immunity most of your immune surveillance takes place during the course of the night and so your ability to respond to antigens in your environment that you've been exposed to so you can mount an immune response that is really important as related to sleep and it may actually be a time for the brain to exercise other connections that you haven't used so that they don't deteriorate Now, beyond that, there are other benefits of sleep that include the release of human growth hormone. That happens during deep sleep. So this is why that N3 and REM stage is really important. So for people who don't get enough sleep and they don't get enough of that REM sleep, they're going to have issues potentially with development, which is why the stage of adolescence and um, teenagers sleep is pretty important in terms of human growth hormone output. You also have other proteins produced during sleep, and you're going to get healing, repair, and proteins related to inflammation and fighting inflammation improve memory and learning. Let's go into a little bit more on each of the systems and how they're related to disease because that's what lifestyle medicine is about, right? Preventing and reducing treating disease through lifestyle behaviors. So how does sleep fit in? Well, sleep in the cardiovascular system is pretty important. A lack of sleep decreases heart rate variability. It also increases risk of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, And it increases your risk of a heart attack or stroke. As far as the digestive system, there is a very close relationship between amount of sleep and obesity. And there have been studies confirming that insufficient sleep reduces leptin and increases ghrelin. These should sound familiar to you. We've talked about these hormones before. Ghrelin increases hunger. Think of your stomach growling, right? So if you increase ghrelin, you are going to eat more. You are going to feel hungry. And even a single night of reduced sleep tends to increase appetite the next day. Leptin, on the other hand, is the appetite suppressor. And so if you reduce it, you're going to have, again, an increased appetite. This, over time, chronic sleep deprivation could be a contributor to being overweight or obese. Now, this is also closely related to the endocrine system because inadequate sleep prompts the release of higher insulin levels, which increases your risk for type 2 diabetes. In fact, research has shown that a single night of sleep deprivation leads to transient insulin resistance. And adults with less than 5 hours of sleep a night They have been found to be two and a half times more likely to have type 2 diabetes. Sleep also, as I said, allows for immune surveillance and inflammatory processing. So a lack of sleep can affect not only the inflammation in your body and the ability of your immune system to help in the healing and repair process, it also can influence your ability to fight off infections and make antibodies because you are not getting sufficient immune surveillance. In fact, there have been studies that have shown that There is a decreased production of antibodies after a vaccine among those who have insufficient sleep. And as you'll see here in a second, particularly with respiratory infections, a lack of sleep is also closely related to an increase in respiratory infections, partly because of the decrease in immune surveillance. So sleep also affects skin aging. You have more wrinkles more pigmentation, and a reduced elasticity in the skin with inadequate sleep. Partly because of that repair process, skin is one of those tissues that regenerates uh, all the time. And so without sufficient time to do that with sleep, you're going to have changes to the skin. Sleep is also important to muscular development and growth. Recovery and muscle growth happens with response to human growth hormone which is released in that slow wave sleep that deep sleep this is really important so if you're not getting enough slow wave sleep you may not get sufficient human growth hormone to allow for that remodeling and the nervous system as well is affected actually significantly you get a decreased concentration impaired learning you feel more emotionally unstable a loss of creativity, and increased reaction times, which becomes an important part of driving risk. I'll talk about that in a second. So three basic areas of learning and memory are affected by a lack of sleep. Receiving information and storing it as a memory, so memory acquisition, is negatively affected. You also have a difficult time transitioning from short-term memory to long-term memory. So that consolidation, the connections that allow you to create the memory as a more stable and useful long-term form. And then recall, accessing and utilizing the information that you store. That is also affected. And here's a really big one I'd like you to remember. Not just as part of this class, but also just as a future um, lifestyle lesson, because it happens to all of us at one point or another, where we have some place to be, some place to go, but we are very tired. Lack of sleep can lead to a driving performance that is similar to a legal alcohol level of intoxication. For example, after 17 to 19 hours without sleep, Driving performance is equivalent to a blood alcohol level of about 0.05. The legal limit in most states is 0.04. That's pretty significant and kind of scary because while many of us may stop to think about getting in a car after drinking, we're not as good about getting in a car and driving when we're tired. And in some cases, the tiredness may not even develop until the driving has already started. So on a longer trip, on a boring trip, on a trip by yourself, you're returning home for a weekend, for example, from college, or you have a long road trip. Sometimes that sets in later, and so it could be something that leads to increased motor vehicle accidents. Sleep also affects the reproductive system. In fact, it can contribute to infertility. It reduces testosterone levels in men and affects sperm production. It can decrease the sex drive in both men and women. Sleep also affects the renal or urinary system. It can be associated with an increased urinary output, which, for example, if that occurs during the night, can cause more wakefulness. It can increase salt in urine, which also increases urine production in the sense that water tends to follow salt. Irregular sleep can also disrupt the circadian rhythm as it relates to urine production at night. It's also age-related. We tend to make more urine at night as we get older, and so that can also disrupt sleep. So there's a two-way street here with the urinary system. As I mentioned before, an inadequate level of sleep increases your susceptibility to infections because the immune system's surveillance is affected. In fact, studies have shown that you have a greater incidence of the common cold and influenza if you have inadequate sleep. It also affects more chronic conditions, such as chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases, like emphysema. It also can be affected and further affect episodes of snoring, which can exacerbate sleep levels and decrease sleep. And it can affect apnea, sleep apnea, which we'll talk about here in a second as a sleep disorder. It also affects your bone remodeling. You can get a decreased bone density if you have insufficient sleep, and it may even impact your blood cell development because of the impact on the bone marrow. Now, What are some of the actual sleep-related difficulties? Turns out that 50 to 70 percent, I'm sorry, 50 to 70 million Americans have sleep or wakefulness disorders. It affects your ability to concentrate on things, remember things. It really affects motor vehicle crashes, driving It also can affect, as I said, work. In fact, occupational errors and industrial disasters can sometimes be traced to sleep deprivation. In healthcare workers, it can contribute to medical errors, which is not something you want to be responsible for. Lack of sleep affects mental health. Physical health and quality of life. In terms of mental health, it affects vigilance, thinking, decision making, reaction time, mood, cognitive function, and can even begin to affect relationships, social functioning, learning, and academic performance, not to mention your physical health. It can lead to hypertension, type 2 diabetes, increased risk of heart attacks, obesity, all of these things in your physical health, which all together end up increasing your to- total mortality risk. So while we take it for granted, chronic sleep deprivation is kind of a big deal. But how many people does this affect? If you look at it across the country, there's even a geographical distribution. You see that the darker areas on this side of the country is where you have a very high rate of individuals who get less than 7 hours of sleep. And if you look at Americans who say they rarely or ever get a good night's sleep on weekdays, that also varies by age in addition to geographical distribution. What's interesting here is where you guys are right now has the highest percentage of individuals saying that they don't get a good night's sleep during weekdays and you could probably attest to this yourselves. That rate tends to go down as people get older But if we look at U.S. workers who claim that they get less than six hours of sleep a night, that has increased over the last several decades. So if you look at 1990, only about a quarter of Americans said that they got less than six hours of sleep a night. In 2010, it was 30%. And currently, it's even higher than that. In fact, if you look at the spending on... Diagnosis of sleep disorders, that has skyrocketed since 2008. You're seeing that go up, and that's not even the most recent numbers. That has gone up almost 15% in the U.S., and that also has seen an increase in the medications that have been prescribed for people to address their sleep deprivation. Now, some of what is causing their sleep disturbances... Can be related to behavior, society, and cultural change. So, for example, we have more shift work than we did before. There are things that contribute to a poor sleep routine. We have a lot more stimulation available. Entertainment, TV, internet, the ability to stream and binge watch things. You know, it used to be. Shows were only on certain nights a week, and when that was over, you had to wait a week for the next one. Whereas now, we're kind of having an issue with uh, instant gratification. I really want to see what's happening next, or I'm not even aware that how much time has passed on my phone or computer. I mean, it used to be, if you ask parents or grandparents, that after a certain time of night, the TV had like a rainbow pattern there was no actual signal being broadcast by local stations. And so what else did you do? You turned the TV off and you went to sleep or read or did some other hobby that didn't include a screen. Now, some people have a defined sleep disorder rather than just being influenced by some of these things. And it does seem to have increased potentially because of some of these factors I just mentioned. In fact, there are over 70 different defined sleep disorders. The most common is are insomnia, restless leg syndrome, and sleep apnea. There are several others. We're not gonna go through all of those because to be quite honest, these have to be diagnosed by a healthcare professional. And so you would likely make a referral if after going through some of the lifestyle behaviors and things that can be changed, you would most likely make a referral because if a sleep disorder is present, that's going to require some specific testing. But you can still work with somebody to make lifestyle changes because that, as you'll see, is often one of the components of treatment in sleep disorders. Let's start by talking a little bit about insomnia. It is estimated that between 30 to 40% of people at some point during the year would describe themselves as having insomnia. It is by far the most common sleep disorder, and it's just essentially either having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. Many of these people wake up frequently during the night or in the early morning, and once they're awake, they have trouble falling back asleep. Now, it becomes a problem when it begins to affect daytime activities, work productivity, family relationships, etc. Now, there are some cases where there's short-term insomnia. Usually, it's less than three months, and there are acute factors that can be changed. There's something that might come up. Grief, pain from an illness or medical condition, stress, and that if those things can be addressed, that short-term insomnia can be reversed. In addition to poor habits, it might be that you just got really addicted to a particular um, television show, and so you spent several nights or weeks where you're watching these things late into the night, and that developed poor sleep habits that then affect you for a little while until you return to a typical routine. But chronic insomnia disorder happens for at least three months of poor sleep, and it happens at least three nights a week. And this has many more ramifications beyond just sleep, work, home, relationships. And what can cause this is more of a long-term factor of stress, anxiety, mental health conditions like depression poor sleep habits, and as I said, some of them are just based on your poor sleep hygiene, poor routine. Some of the other disorders are medical conditions, particularly those that lead to pain or physical discomfort during the night, or require you to take medications that may affect sleep. Some of them are things you do have control over, like caffeine or alcohol consumption. Treatment here is usually done by a person that is trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, there are some other things that can be used with insomnia, but this has been recommended as the first um, treatment option for people with chronic insomnia disorder. And cognitive behavioral therapy happens um, in actually quite a few different conditions. But here, part of the focus is going to be on relaxation techniques to increase that pre-bedtime um, relaxation and to control the stimuli, particularly prior to sleep. So limiting the time on screens, making sure that your place of sleep is set up well, and we'll go through some of these as, um, as well at the end of this lecture. So, and this, there's a, a term that we'll talk about called sleep hygiene, and this basically has to do with Um, making sure that your environment and your behaviors and your timing are all such that they promote healthy sleep. And then for some people who have insomnia, some of the recurring thoughts, sometimes even just obsessing over whether or not they will get a good night's sleep and what of these things are going to affect their sleep, those things have to be dealt with as well so that they don't end up laying in bed thinking about whether they're going to fall asleep, and then that in and of itself creates sleep issues. So insomnia can be something that can happen at multiple times over life, and in some cases may require professional um, treatment, and in other cases might just be a transient factor that can be addressed with other sleep hygiene factors, which we'll talk about towards the end of this lecture. Another sleep disorder that's relatively common is called restless leg syndrome, often abbreviated RLS, also sometimes called Willis-Eckbaum syndrome. About 10% of U.S. adults would say that they have this, and sometimes they're not even aware of it. Um, It is considered a neurological sensory motor disorder, and it's even hard for people to describe. It is Um, usually in the lower extremities the legs and the feet and it usually produces an uncontrollable urge to move their legs. Sometimes people would describe a burning, tingling, prickly sensation and some people don't even know how to describe it. They just know they need to move their legs. It often causes them to do excessive circular or rhythmic leg movements, and that can provide some relief, but unfortunately it tends to come back once they are at rest again, sitting or laying down. The issue is that it can dislay, d- delay and disrupt sleep. In fact, if someone does manage to fall asleep, it can continue to occur and wake them up, and in that case it has a different name, it's called periodic leg movement of sleep, or PLMS. And when this occurs, it could cause them to wake up and they don't even realize why. They just know that all of a sudden now they're awake. It tends to happen more often in later life. Middle-aged and older adults suffer from it the most. And there does seem to be a genetic component. In other words, a family history. There are some things that can contribute to it that aren't genetically related, though. Kidney failure seems to be related to it. Some nerve disorders Um, For example, nerve damage, particularly with diabetes, can contribute to restless leg syndrome. Certain vitamin and iron deficiencies can relate to that. And some medications can increase the likelihood of restless leg syndrome, particularly certain antidepressants. Treatment is partly lifestyle related. Exercise can help, particularly if it's in the morning. Certain stretches and massaging of the legs can help. And... Identifying if an iron deficiency is present, because if an iron deficiency is present, iron supplementation tends to help. Certain medications, including sedatives, can help relax a person and allow them to have better sleep, particularly if that periodic leg movement contributes to waking or falling asleep um, at bedtime. Now, another thing that can occur for some people that sometimes is related to certain treatable conditions, and other times is more serious, and that is snoring. This is a noise produced when inhaled air actually makes noise by rattling over the relaxed tissues in the soft palate. And this noise can be a problem not only because it can awaken the person themselves, but it often creates issues with sleep even for a bed partner or spouse because that person then, even if they don't have any sleep disorder, they are awakened by the noise that is produced by their partner. So this could, and the reason I bring it up here, it could be a marker of a more serious sleep problem because it is one of the key markers of sleep apnea, which is why I bring it up here because that's the next thing we're going to talk about. However, it can also occur in those cases where where people have nasal congestion allergies it can happen when somebody has the common cold or is mouth breathing a lot it can happen with asthma or nasal deformities such as a deviated septum which can affect sleep as well but it is one of the hallmarks of sleep apnea sleep apnea is when normal breathing is interrupted for short periods of time in other words they may start and stop breathing at various times during the night This decreases oxygen levels in the blood, and then the brain signals an arousal so that the person wakes up enough to breathe. But then as they fall back asleep, that process happens again. If they stop breathing and the oxygen level decreases, the brain again signals arousal so that they will wake up enough to breathe. Now, there are two main types here. One is obstructive sleep apnea, and this is the more common. In this case, the upper airway becomes collapsed or blocked during sleep, partially or completely, and this is the one that has the hallmark of loud snoring, because the air is rattling over those um, relaxed tissues. Central sleep apnea, on the other hand, happens when the brain doesn't send an adequate signal to the muscles to take a breath, particularly your respiratory muscles. Now, Either of these, regardless of the type, is associated with high blood pressure and an increased risk of stroke and heart attack. Obstructive sleep apnea, in particular, is related to being overweight or obese. In fact, this this is quite common among those who are obese. It also is more common among those who have diabetes, and there is a relationship we know with diabetes and obesity as well. It is more common in those with heart disease kidney disease, and neuromuscular diseases such as Parkinson's. It also is related to anatomical issues with soft tissue and glands. For example, those who have enlarged tonsils and adenoids, they may notice they have more risks of um, both snoring and sleep apnea. Now, treatment here can involve lifestyle. Some of these things we're going to talk about toward the end here about how you can improve your sleep environment and your sleep hygiene. But in other cases, an actual sleep machine or CPAP machine that creates positive pressure um, may be one of the treatment options. It is possible to try to help with the tongue positioning and implants or mouthpieces that help with that soft tissue placement during sleep or surgery to, reduce, um, to, to remove the tonsils, for example, and address a deviated septum or soft tissue changes in um, that soft palate area. Now, regardless of which of these we're talking about, often a sleep study is something you may have to refer somebody for. So if working with somebody you identify that there may be something more going on here beyond just they have poor sleep habits, this is where you would make a referral to a healthcare professional for an official diagnosis of a sleep disorder. And what happens here is they usually do a sleep study either in a facility overnight or a machine is sent or taken home with a person to do it at home. And it is called a polysomnogram. This takes a whole bunch of different measurements. You're actually It can be uncomfortable in some cases because you're hooked up to all kinds of things that um, take all kinds of measurements. For example, the airflow and blood oxygen level are measured. Breathing events, in other words, how many times, breathing rate. How much eye movement occurs. You're also hooked up to an EEG to measure brain waves. You're also hooked up to measure electrical signals of the muscle. And this is helpful for central sleep apnea in case you're not getting those signals from the brain to the muscles to take a breath. And you're measuring the heart rate. So you have all these things that are being measured over time. And this will help narrow down what might be happening during that sleep process. Now, even if there's no diagnosis of a sleep disorder... Some people may just suffer from disordered sleep, and there are certain barriers to getting good sleep, and we'll go over some of these. Some of them are things that we can address through psychological or cognitive behavioral therapy. Stress, anxiety, certain depressive disorders are related to psychological factors that can contribute to poor sleep. But some of it is just that we don't have a good sleep routine or have good sleep hygiene. We'll talk at the end here about some of the things you can do to develop better sleep routines. Some things have to do with your environment. Some of them are things we'll talk about you can do to make sure that your bedroom has adequate factors to encourage good sleep. Some of them are internal that you may need a physician's help to address. For example, pain or medical conditions or the result of medications. Even thyroid problems can also contribute to disturbances to sleep. We're going to spend a little bit of time here, though, at the beginning talking about food-related factors and napping. Food-related factors are part of this nutrition pillar that we've talked about already, but there are some specific things. Some of it will be common sense, but there are specific things that you can make recommendations with a patient or client to help with food-related factors of sleep. We'll briefly talk about exercise do's and don'ts related to um, sleep. We'll talk in a completely different lecture, in fact, I believe it's next week, about reducing stress. Because that can be a contributor, particularly to the relaxation necessary to enter sleep. And it can be helpful even during the night if someone wakes. Um, In terms of relationships, this might be one of those things that has to be addressed in terms of snoring or preferences with sleep environment. Temperature, if you have a bed partner. Light in the room with a bed partner. Preferences for other things in the room, like a TV or uh, other sources of blue light in the room. And then substances. We'll talk briefly about substances here before moving on to sleep hygiene, and then we have an entire lecture about risky substances um, that can also affect sleep. So let's start by talking about exercise. Now... Daily exercise can actually be really helpful with sleep, and part of it should make sense to you, right? You use energy in order to exercise. That's going to use more ATP. It's going to create more adenosine buildup, and we learned that the homeostatic cycle creates a sleepiness because of an accumulation of adenosine. So daily exercise can make a person more tired, therefore get a better night's sleep, but Timing and type and intensity are factors. Ideally, exercise in the morning or very early afternoon can help with sleep. You do not want to have aerobic exercise near bedtime, particularly vigorous exercise. Vigorous exercise before bed is likely going to increase stimulation, and that is going to make it hard to fall asleep. So type could be an influencer here because light yoga or stretching could actually bring about relaxation so that can help with a wind down routine for some individuals before sleep or even um, relaxation techniques that can help with a wind down routine nutrition on the other hand has a really big set of factors to consider so there's quite a few slides here to reduce address the nutrition pillar as it relates to sleep. Let's start by talking about that thing we all tend to have in the morning, and that's caffeine. What's important to realize about this, if we go back to the homeostatic cycle that includes accumulation of adenosine, now remember that as adenosine accumulates during the day, that's going to help make you sleepy. Well, caffeine actually binds to the same receptor that adenosine does, but instead of promoting more sleep, you're going to see an opposite effect. It is actually going to promote the release of adrenaline. That's what gives you the pick-me-up with caffeine in the morning, is that caffeine uh, binds with the adenosine receptors and promotes the release of adrenaline from the pituitary. Now the other issue here is, while this is all great for us in the morning, again, timing can be important, because caffeine has a half-life of 5 to 6 hours and metabolism varies but it can take potentially 24 hours or more depending on how much caffeine for it to be completely gone from the system so it is not recommended to have caffeine after about noon because it could then affect your ability to fall asleep in the evening now some people will think they need caffeine in the afternoon because they begin to get tired however other pick-me-ups, particularly with afternoon sleepiness, can be better. In fact, making sure that you're getting enough hydration earlier in the day. Now, caffeine in the morning is a diuretic. It often makes people urinate more. And if they are not simultaneously replenishing that water, then they may feel sleepy in the afternoon. So hydration is a key part of staying awake during the day. And Sometimes just getting activity. Sometimes we're too sedentary during the day. Getting up and taking a walk, if you feel tired sitting at your desk during the day, that can be as energizing as having a cup of coffee. And it will have a better benefit for your sleep. Whereas having a cup of coffee could affect your ability to fall asleep in the evening. Now what about having a snack before bed? A big meal is not recommended because a big meal prompts your digestion and it can make it difficult to fall asleep. If you are hungry, though, you shouldn't go to bed hungry. But a small snack is best. And the right type of food could even increase your ability to fall asleep. So one of the things you probably remember from... Thanksgiving meal, for example, is people getting sleepy. People talk about turkey and tryptophan. However, tryptophan is found in quite a few foods. And here is the key thing to realize about tryptophan. The reason that tryptophan produces a feeling of sleepiness, or at least has a reputation for producing or being related to sleepiness, is because tryptophan is a precursor to, to serotonin which is a precursor to melatonin. So, remember me talking about that circadian cycle of sleep? That melatonin increases in the evening, which prompts you to get sleepy. So, if tryptophan is taken in, as it goes through its cycle and becomes melatonin, you could therefore get positive benefits, much like that circadian cycle that increases feelings of sleepiness in the evening as it gets dark. Now, there are certain foods, in addition to turkey, that have levels of tryptophan that can be helpful. Nuts and seeds, banana, honey, eggs, and milk are high in tryptophan. So this is kind of where that, you know, evening cup of milk might have come from, right? That warm milk might help you feel sleepy. Well, there are other foods that can help with that as well. For example, calcium and magnesium, almonds and bananas that can also play a role in helping you feel sleepy. Now, combining something with tryptophan with carbohydrates seems to make the tryptophan more available to the brain for use. So carbohydrates may be something that can be beneficial along with a source of tryptophan to help you get sleepy. Now carbohydrates obviously found in all kinds of things, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, but there are some Sources of both melatonin and carbohydrates that can be helpful. For example, cherries have been shown to be a natural source of melatonin in addition to having just a little bit of carb in the form of sugar. What you don't want to do, however, is try to take a shortcut with a processed version. For example, don't drink sweetened cherry juice before going to bed. An unsweetened cherry juice or tart cherry juice might be okay if you're not just going to eat the whole food cherry version, but that has been shown in um, research to potentially increase the melatonin levels and may enhance your sleep quality. What about other types of foods? High-fat foods, in addition to causing weight gain, can disrupt sleep cycles, partly because, much like proteins, fat digestion just takes longer. And that can also potentially translate into bathroom trips, particularly really greasy meals. Now, there's sort of a, a way that you can make some of this work. While protein does... Um, have a longer time to digest, certain types of proteins, for example, those related to ones that have tryptophan, for example, almonds, along with a carb here might be beneficial. Let's look a little bit more at beverages. What about an evening beverage? Some people say, oh, you know, I'd like to have a warm beverage at night. That sort of relaxes me. But the type of beverage you choose, again, here can be important. Remember what I talked about caffeine, that that is a stimulant in the sense that it produces adrenaline by combining with adenosine receptors. So caffeine is found in chocolate. Let's say you have hot chocolate, in black tea, and it's a small amount, but it is in to some level in decaffeinated coffee. So cutting out caffeine at least four to six hours, but preferably um, afternoon, is going to be the way to go in order to induce sleep. If you're going to have a beverage, even be careful with water. It's more important to be hydrated during the day than to drink a bunch before you go to bed, because for some people, that could mean they're getting up to go to the bathroom during the night. One of the reasons it's important to stay hydrated during the day is remember I mentioned that your body temperature changes during various phases of the sleep cycle? Well, if you're dehydrated that can alter your ability for your body temperature to regulate at night. And it can be one of the reasons that people will wake during the night and sort of be hot or have a a night sweat because their body temperature is not adequately regulating because they're dehydrated. Now. While filling up on liquids before bed um, is not recommended, some people have felt that alcohol helps them to fall asleep. But while it may help you fall asleep initially, it is not a good idea for staying asleep. Part of it is it contributes to those night sweats. It can lead to more Um, headaches and feelings of dehydration, and it can cause you to have to get up and go to the bathroom because it, too, is a diuretic along with caffeine. And so you'll have a less restful sleep, frequent awakenings, sometimes just to use the bathroom. And this is another one, just like with caffeine. Ideally, avoid alcohol four to six hours before bedtime. So rather than having your glass of wine to relax in the evening, you know, watching TV, have your glass of wine with dinner. Think of the Mediterranean diet. They have a glass of red wine with their meal, for example. What about smoking? Well, smoking in general is bad, and we're going to have a whole lecture talking about both alcohol and smoking. Nicotine is a stimulant, and it's going to have similar effects to caffeine. So ideally, you should not be smoking at all. But if that's a habit that you'd like to stop and you just haven't yet, at least if you can limit smoking before bed and not smoke in the middle of the night, you know, people will tell you that... They, they smoke because it relaxes them. So doing that in the middle of the night to relax might be thought to be beneficial, but it actually could make it more and more difficult to go back to sleep because it would be a stimulant. Some people will try to resort to over-the-counter remedies to go to sleep. Certain pain relievers... Weight loss pills and diuretics, cold medications, they can actually have caffeine in them. So check labels of those over-the-counter non-prescription drugs. They may even try to use certain over-the-counter remedies meant to increase sleep, like antihistamines. Some pain relievers also have an antihistamine that produces drowsiness. So it's recommended to talk to your doctor about this before trying to self-medicate. There are some natural remedies that some people claim will be beneficial for them. For example, if you're going to have tea, make it an herbal tea. Chamomile, no caffeine, it seems to help some people with relaxation. Lavender or aromatherapy, also thought to have a relaxing, calming effect. And in some cases, supplementation with melatonin can improve sleep. Again, it is best here to reach out to a physician or healthcare provider to first remove any other possible issues that could come into play before self-medicating. Now what about naps? Sometimes we all just feel if we had a little nap we'd we'd feel much better and be able to make it through our day and that is sometimes true. The issue is that sometimes we take a nap for too long. A nap of less than 30 minutes can be beneficial. But if you're going to nap, make sure they are no longer than that and that they're not too late in the day. In fact, if you are already having sleep problems, naps could exacerbate that. So again, reaching out to a health care provider can be really important here. So if you're continually napping and then having issues going to sleep at night, try to cut out the naps and just go to bed earlier and see if that helps and if that is still creating issues again reaching out to a healthcare provider but let's say you're going to take a nap studies have shown that even like less than 10 minutes can be rejuvenating and this is interesting because remember how long i mentioned it takes to get from stage one into stage two of your sleep cycle. Remember, it's only like one to seven minutes typically in the N1 stage of non-REM sleep. So just a few minutes in that stage one and just a few minutes in stage two is sufficient. So this is where, you know, if you're going to take one, set a timer. If it takes a few minutes to fall asleep, set an alarm so that you're not going to sleep more than a half hour. If that happens, you ideally would be waking up before you get into a stage of deep sleep, which is where you can start to feel more sluggish. You experience what's called sleep inertia. If you end up waking up in a deep sleep cycle, you end up feeling even more tired. So let's talk about addressing these barriers. So a term you will hear in addressing your sleep routine is called sleep hygiene. There are three categories that you can address for better sleep that are in general called addressing your sleep hygiene or sleep routine. And they fall into preparation ahead of time for your sleep, your environment, making sure that it is um, sufficient for promoting sleep, and then timing. Of quite a few different things that can contribute to sleep. Let's go over each of these. Let's start with your preparation in sleep hygiene. One of the issues, as I mentioned, for those who have chronic sleep problems is that they begin to have anxiety about not sleeping. It can also be a problem if you have a sleep partner or a spouse who has their own preferences. You may need to have a formal discussion about things that you both need or want in the environment or timing of sleep. Here is one of the other things that you don't want to do. You don't want to voluntarily experience a heightened stimulation or emotion. So it's not recommended to watch a scary movie, to watch an action-packed movie right before bed, You also don't want to have an argument before bed, increasing your emotional levels. You also want to avoid TV, phone, and devices right before sleep, particularly anything that emits blue lights. Because blue light increases cortisol, and cortisol then blocks melatonin. And remember, we want melatonin to increase at bedtime. That's what helps promote sleep. So those are the things you don't want to do in terms of preparing. Don't, you know, try relaxation. Relaxation. That can help relieve anxiety related to sleep, meditation, a warm bath, a warm caffeinated drink or milk, and then listen to your body. If you're tired in the evening, that's okay. You may need more sleep than a spouse or a bed partner. Getting regular exercise in the day, ideally in the morning, and exposure to sunlight, particularly in the morning. This is what's going to help regulate that melatonin. As you get exposure to light, you will decrease or suppress melatonin. And that wakefulness, particularly in the morning, can be really important. And some people may think that just being exposed to light indoors is sufficient. But there's actually a totally different degree of intensity of light with outdoor exposure to light versus indoor exposure to light. And even outdoor exposure to light with a cloudy day is still important to suppressing melatonin and helping with that circadian control of sleep. What about your environment? And this is one we don't always think of, but it can be pretty important. And people will be surprised at how this can greatly affect your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. Don't have a television in your bedroom. And don't watch television in bed. You should restrict the use of the bedroom and the bed itself to sleep and sexual activity. should not be on your phone, looking at a tablet, or watching TV. Because that is associating your body with something different than sleep. You should not use those devices. Not only because you're you're, um, creating an association with something different than sleep with that bedroom, but you're also exposing yourself to Light prior to sleep if you're going to have a nightlight in the room or get up at night to use the restroom with a flashlight it is recommended that it be as dim as possible and if possible be a red or orange color and that is because red or orange light does not dilate the pupils as much as white light green light or blue light you should also avoid having pets in the bed because their movements can also wake you up, even if you would not normally have awoken. So keeping the temperature of the room is also important. And this can be tough because you may walk in the bedroom and feel like it's really cold in there. But once you snuggle down into the bed coverings, usually that cool bedroom temperature becomes a really important part of helping you have that homeostatic energy. Um, Regulation of body temperature that occurs during the various sleep stages at night. So between 60 and 67, which is cooler than we tend to keep other parts of the house. And so this is one of those things that older homes that don't have zone heating or zone cooling, that can make a difference. So it could be possible that you need to make some changes or um, try to investigate ways to alter your bedroom temperature as opposed to the temperature that you keep the rest of the house, the kitchen or living spaces. Keeping the bedroom quiet when sleeping. Now for some people, they need it completely quiet. For others, certain noises that are out of their control could wake them at night. And so for others, it could be they need to drown out noises. Let's say they live in the city or they live in an area where there could be more ambient noise. Helicopters, planes going over, uh, emergency vehicles going by. In those cases, they may need a white noise background to drown that out. In other cases, it could be something we don't even think about. For example, the periodic um start of your furnace or your air conditioning and the blower associated with that in your room, that could even be enough to wake you, particularly in light stages of sleep. So running a fan or having a white noise machine can drown out some of that ambient noise and help you to find a more constant level of sleep. Or earplugs. Now, the issue with earplugs might be that you don't wake to an alarm when needed. So, that can be something that would be a personal preference depending on their individual needs. Now, darkness is huge, partly because, as we talked about, that circadian rhythm and production of melatonin is related to exposure to light. So if you live in a city and there's a lot of ambient light, if you don't block out that light, that's going to potentially affect melatonin. Now the same thing is true for example of Moonlight. Many people will note that during a full moon, if they don't have adequate window coverings, they wake more often during the night. And this is again related to that perception that our eyes, even when closed, still have the ability to to sense light. So blackout curtains or using an eye mask can actually be really helpful and can be useful for regulating that melatonin and circadian cycle. Keeping your feet and hands warm. So because the room is cooler than what other living spaces might be, it might be that you find you need to have socks or, you know, maybe even gloves in some cases, initially to fall asleep. And some people may notice they even tend to peel those off at some point during the night and don't remember that they did it. So this is where there's kind of a fine line. You need to be warm enough under those bed coverings to fall asleep, but you want the ambient temperature to be cool enough to support those body temperature changes that you go through at the various stages of sleep. So, what about timing? I mentioned already if you're going to take daytime naps, they need to be less than 30 minutes. Don't do vigorous exercise before bed, don't have an argument or have increased emotion, watch stimulating things on TV. In fact, don't use any type of screen before bed. Regulating your caffeine intake and the timing of that, ideally not afternoon. Don't use alcohol or other sleep aids to help you sleep. And timing of your meal. Ideally, eat your meal two to three hours before you tend to go to sleep, and more than that if necessary. If you're going to eat, have a small snack. We talked about some of the good options that might even help with sleep. Don't try sleeping pills, particularly if they're somebody else's, if you're going through a short period of insomnia. That might be something to take up with a healthcare provider or addressing other sleep hygiene areas. Don't try over-the-counter medications that aid in sleep, i.e. antihistamines, because there are side effects associated with those that could end up causing other issues or interact with other medications, which is something we don't always think about. So here's one that not everybody likes to do trying to go to bed and get up at the same time. Many people from when we were small can't wait for the weekend to sleep in. But research indicates that it is actually better for your sleep-wake cycle if you have a consistent bedtime and wake-up time every day of the week. And what this might mean is that on the weekends or on the weekdays, you just have to move things up. I know it's not conducive to college life, right? If you're going to hang out on the weekends with friends or do things, but at least in terms of sleep, the best recommendation is to consistently go to bed at the same time, which means working backwards, reverse engineering it. If you know you need to be up by 7 a.m. to be at work or class, you need to get seven to eight hours of sleep. You need to back it up from there. So if you need to be up by 7, you should ideally be going to bed no earlier or no later than 11 p.m. And ideally, even maybe 10 or 10.30 with a wind-down routine. For example, you could have the lights as dim as possible for that hour or so before bed. Do some relaxation. Do some reading. Put on relaxing music. Put on some aromatherapy with lavender. Have a cup of decaffeinated herbal tea or chamomile tea. So there are things you could do to really enhance your sleep routine, but it requires some commitment to backing things up half an hour or an hour before you want to be asleep so that you're going to get that full seven to eight hours of sleep. Now, daytime naps, as I mentioned, they can disrupt your sleep, particularly if they're more than 30 minutes. And they're not recommended if you're already somebody who has difficulty with sleep at night. So let's say you're working with a patient or client And you've determined at least they don't have a significant sleep disorder. If you're beginning to question that, you'd want to make a referral. But you can work with somebody, particularly in a coaching conversation, to help them with a sleep prescription. You can have a coaching conversation. Ask them about their sleep routine. It's one of those things we tend to take for granted. Talk about sleep hygiene. That could give somebody more energy, for example, to exercise. It could even Make that so that exercise increases their sleep. Nutrition. So some of these things that you may end up talking to people about are all back and forth related in a close relationship to sleep. So we take this one for granted, and we may sometimes feel like it's out of our, our um, scope of practice, but as long as you can determine that the individual does not need further health care help, In other words, a sleep study for identifying a sleep disorder. There's no reason you can't have that discussion about lifestyle behavior changes to enhance sleep, because even in the case of a sleep disorder, lifestyle changes are often part of that treatment process. So I'd highly recommend considering having that that discussion with people about what they may want to discuss with quality, quantity, and time. Developing a sleep routine, focusing on sleep enhancers, and then getting rid of the distractors. So consider this even in your own lives, because this is one of those things that can really, really help individuals to enhance the other parts of their lives. And it is one that we take for granted. So if you can yourself experiment and then to be able to talk about this with patients, clients, family members, and friends, then this could be something that even though it affects everything, it's relatively easy to make small changes that could really benefit your health and quality of life.